Thank you for listening. Visit www.cityhillglobal.com to find out more about City Hill Church. Good morning. It's good to see you all, it really is. I'm going to um, read from 1 Corinthians. We're continuing our series entitled Wild. So if, you want to, if you've got your Bibles with you, if you've got it on your phone or your iPad, whatever you use, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 8. And it'd be great if we can just read that together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but you can follow along in whatever version you've got, and it will be here on the screen as well. It says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you assembled, sorry, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The Paul here is dealing with a sin issue. Throughout this whole book, he's dealing with different issues in this church. And Paul here is dealing with a specific sin issue, namely that there is a man in the congregation, there's a man in the church, the man in that community who is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother, probably his father's second or third wife. Now, she's probably not part of the community because Paul doesn't really pick up on her directly, just this man. And this man is a part of this community. Now, think about the context that this church are in, okay? This is a church, a lot like ours, who are looking to outlive their Christianity and be the people of God in the middle of a pagan, a major pagan city. Now, this city, probably like most other modern major cities around the world, would have been full of sexual immorality. It would have been full of it. The city Corinth was full of prostitution, and it was pretty rampant within that city. And Paul here is really calling the church to be different, to be set apart. What he's saying is, when you come out of the world, when you come out of the city, and you set foot in the church, you set foot in this community, you should see, you should hear, you should experience something different. This church should be distinctive. We're to be in the city, we're to be in the world, we're to engage with culture, and yet we are to be distinctive from it. We are to be different from it. And the church, like City Hill in Dubai, like any church in any city, is called to be a distinctive and a prophetic community 
that reveals the truth of who God is to the world, that reveals the truth of the gospel and the transformative work of the gospel to the city and to the culture. However, Paul here is angry. Paul's frustrated because this church is losing its distinctiveness. Not only do they know there's a sin issue going on in the church, they're refusing to deal with it in the right way. They're tolerating it, and actually, they're boasting about it. And they are losing their distinctiveness as a prophetic community, the people of God in that city. Paul is greatly concerned about two things. And these are the two things that will concern us this morning as we look at this passage. Firstly, this church seems to have failed to understand the nature and the effects of sin. This church seems to have failed to understand the true nature and the true effect of sin. And this church seems to have failed to understand the true nature of freedom, the freedom that they now have in Jesus Christ and the gospel. Let's just pray before we go any further. Father, I want to thank you for your word this morning. I want to thank you, Lord, that when we come to your word, we don't just read it, it reads us. Your word knows us. It reveals to us who we are, and it reveals to us who you are. And I pray this morning as we come before your word, would you, by your Holy Spirit, empower us to receive Would you open our eyes to see? Would you open our ears to hear? And would you make our hearts ready, Lord, and receptive to be spoken to by your word this morning, to be transformed by the incredible power of the truth of the gospel contained in the word of God and contained in this letter from Paul to this church? Lord, speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher and theologian, he defines sin... As this, he says, sin is building your identity on anything but God. Sin is building your identity on anything but God. And actually, that's what we see when sin first entered the world. Adam and Eve, rather than looking now to God for their identity, rather than looking to Him for who they are and all that they needed, they displace Him. And in the New Testament in Romans, we're told that they look now instead to created things, to good things, to their identity, and they give their worship to created things rather than the creator. And that is sin. It is finding our identity in anything or building our identity on anything that is not God. It's removing God from the equation and instead enthroning something else in his place. It's finding your ultimate sense of self-worth in something other than God, maybe your job, maybe your title, maybe your career. It's finding your ultimate sense of security in something other than God, maybe wealth, maybe your looks, some of you, maybe your physical strength, whatever it may be. And it's basing our intrinsic value, our intrinsic sense of worth, our reason for being on something other than God. Kierkegaard is right. That is what sin is. It's building an identity, a core identity, building a reason for being on something other than God. But you see, there's something that wires us to do this. Now, as I prayed, I was saying, you know, the the Bible has us pinned down, doesn't it? It has us really pegged in this area. The Bible, the Word of God, knows us. When we come before it, 
It reads us. We don't just read it, it reads us. And it reveals to us what we're really like. It reveals to us the nature of who we really are. And in reality, what we are as humans and what our hearts actually are, we're addicts. We're spiritual addicts. We're addicted in some way to pick something, to give it our worship and make it our ultimate thing. The Word of God asserts that we are, we all are, by nature, addicts, spiritual addicts. See, when you worship something, when you take a good thing and you make it your ultimate thing, when we give our lives and our hearts in dedicated service to something, a created thing, we become enslaved to it. We become addicted to it. And Paul in Romans, he says exactly this. In Romans 1.15, he says, writing to the church in Rome, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves or servants, you could say, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, skipping to verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and leads, and its end, eternal life. For the wages, the results of sin, the results of building your life on an identity apart from God is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What's Paul saying? He's saying, if you are to build your identity on anything, you will become enslaved to it. You will become addicted to it. When you serve something, you will become addicted. You will become enslaved to it. And ultimately, that sin leads to death. It leads to eternal separation from God. And that's the seriousness of what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, okay, there's this sin issue, and it could actually be any sin issue that Paul is talking about here. But he's saying you're failing to realize the true nature of sin. It's addictive. It's an identity apart from God. And it's a big, big deal. I don't know if you've ever been up close to addiction, if you've ever seen addiction up close, or you've ever seen an addict up close. I told you probably a while ago that I grew up in a, in a rehabilitation center, drug and alcohol rehabilitation center when I was little. And all the guys there were addicts, including my father, and they were all addicted to something, mostly drugs and alcohol. And what you notice when you get up close to addicts or addiction that way, there's a few things that you really notice. And there's three things that I want to pick out this morning that I think are relevant. The first thing you see, interestingly, when you're up close to addiction or up close to anyone addicted to anything is denial. Something about an addict, something about addiction, there's a sense of denial there. The addict very often cannot see. You can see it, but they cannot see the true nature of what's going on. They cannot see that they are actually addicted. They just don't see it. You see, they don't understand and they don't see the gradual growth and the gradual hold that this thing has over them and the gradual growth of this addiction in their lives. You, you'll hear them say things like, it's okay, I've got this. 
I've got it. It's not a big deal. It's not a major issue. I know that it's causing me problems right now, but it's okay. At some point, I'm going to sort this. At some point, I'll stop. Or you'll hear them say something like, this isn't really me. It's not me. I know it's a problem. I know it's, it's harmful. I know it's not good, but it's not really me. And at some point, I'm going to deal with it. And you see, that's the deceptive nature of sin. That's the deceptive nature of building an identity on anything other than God. It's an addiction, and we don't see it. We don't see the nature of what it truly is. It's a spiritual addiction, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. C.S. Lewis says it brilliantly when he talks about sin and the effects of sin. He says this, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I was going to live only 70 years, but which I'd better bother about very seriously if I am going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy, or you can insert there any identity, is gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it will be. It's what Paul is saying in Romans. You become obedient slaves, addicted to the chosen identity built on anything other than God. And its end is death, eternal separation from God. We don't see it. It's deceptive. Often we deny it. Secondly, the deeper you go into addiction, there's this kind of depleting high, if you like, okay? Ask anyone who first uses an addictive substance, drugs, or even coffee. Hannah and I were talking about this this morning. The first time, the, the effects are, so I'm told, amazing. You really feel it. But an addict spends the rest of their time trying, searching for that original high again. Because the reality is that the deeper you go into addiction, the more of the addictive substance, the more of the addictive thing you need in order to maintain the same effects of that substance. Hannah was saying just in the car this morning, she now needs three coffees in the morning to get the effect that one used to have. Have you ever experienced that? Julie's shaking her head. That's the case. That's the thing about addiction. You see, whatever you build your identity upon, other than God, it becomes addictive. And like any addiction, the longer and the deeper you go into it, the more and more and more of that identity you need to experience the same effect that it has. You see, if your identity, I'll give you a few examples. If your identity is built on wealth, if your identity is built on being wealthy, being rich, having a lot, you will need more and more and more and more money in order to give you the same sense of power and the same sense of security that it once gave you. You need more and more and more of it. If your identity is built on a sense of achievement, if your identity is built on a sense of achievement, you will always be looking to conquer the next big thing. You will always be looking to conquer the next big thing in order to give you that sense of self-worth that that identity gives you. 
If your identity is built on recognition, being recognized with people, we know what will happen is you will always be looking for the next person to recognize you. You'll be always looking for the next person to pick out something in you and to give you a position and to give you a pedestal in order to make you feel needed and make you feel worth something. If your identity is built on moralism, if your identity is built on living a good life, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, you will always need, you will always need to point out the sin in everybody else's life in order to give you that sense of moral superiority and that sense that you somehow have earned or you somehow are deserving of your salvation. If your identity is built on acceptance, on being accepted by people, you will run around your whole life trying to please everybody. You will run from the next person to the next person, always trying to please somebody because you will always need to feel that sense of acceptance. And eventually, eventually and thirdly, it leads to you being consumed. It consumes you eventually. You see, any physical addiction, what you'll notice is eventually there's less and less of that person left and just the addiction, just the addiction. And eventually what often happens, if not killed and if not dealt with, that physical addiction leads ultimately to death very, very often. And you know, it's the same with spiritual addiction. C.S. Lewis again says this. He says, hell, it, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, maybe always searching for acceptance, or maybe always searching for the next thing that you can conquer, always searching for achievement. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it but just the grumble itself or the identity itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. That quote's from The Great Divorce. It's a small book. It's a brilliant book. I read it again recently, and it helped it shape my thinking so much on this. It's well worth reading. But what he's saying is just as a, and a physical addiction ultimately leads to us being consumed and leads to death. Our spiritual addiction, sin, leads to us being consumed and it leads to death. That's what Paul is saying in Romans. It's a self-chosen, a self-formed identity apart from God that goes on and on and on and on for eternity and leads to separation from God. The question is, can you see it in yourself? The question is, can I see it in myself? Is there something in there? Is there something in you which, if not nipped in the bud, if not killed, if, if not taken, if you like cold turkey, like you do with a, with a drug addiction, if not dealt with, will grow and grow and grow and eventually become you and consume you. I'm going to try and do this without covering myself in, in red food dye. And you'll see the reason I'm wearing white now. It's a good background. But maybe, maybe in you, maybe it starts off with, it starts off just with, hopefully you can see this, just, you know, an identity 
wanting to please everybody. And it's there, it's in you, but it's still distinct from you. It's not you. You think, it's still, it's still distinct from me. I know it's there, I know it, I need to deal with it. Maybe it's always chasing after wealth because that's your identity. And it's there and you know it's there and one day you'll deal with it, but it's okay. It's still distinct from you. There's still some of you left there. Maybe it's a sin issue, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's lust. And you know it's there, it's like a drop. It's kind of in you and one day you're gonna deal with it. And it's the fruit of something much bigger. It's the fruit of an identity. But it's, it's okay, because you are still distinct from it. It's something of you left. It's okay. And you will one day, you will sort it. You will get rid of it. And it goes on and on and on and on. But you know what happens eventually, as C.S. Lewis says, and as Paul says, you're addicted to it, really. You're addicted to it. And the longer it goes on, the more and more and more and more and more of you it consumes. Until eventually... There's nothing left of you, and there's just this identity, an identity apart from God, an identity not built on him, going on forever and ever and ever, which ultimately leads to separation from him, eternity away from God and all good things. Ask yourself the question this morning, what is it in me that I'm addicted to, if not nipped in the bud, if not dealt with, will become an identity that will consume me and will lead ultimately to death. You see, Paul is angry here. This is part of Paul's letter. He's quite angry. He's very frustrated. He's angry because, you know, the church just don't see the pervasive and the addictive nature of this sin in this individual's life. And the church don't see the undermining effect that this sin is having in the church. It's actually stealing and it's robbing them of their distinctiveness from the world. It's stopping them from being this prophetic community that is displaying the gospel and the truth of who God is to the world. And to top it all off, the church are actually boasting about it. They're pretty pleased about it. They don't care about it. They're boasting because they now feel that this is okay because what? Because we are free. They've misunderstood freedom. We are now free in Christ, and so it doesn't matter what we do. We are free. Paul says in verse 2, you are arrogant. Paul says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. And I feel he's probably being quite kind there. Your boasting is not good. You see, they were puffed up over the whole thing. The church was seeing this sin as just a demonstration and a celebration of the freedom that they now had in Christ. They had taken freedom to mean a lack of all restriction and a lack of all restraint. You see, the nature of freedom in reality is not a lack of all restriction. Paul, in, in Romans 15, 1.15, he says this, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Does it mean now because we're under grace there's no restriction at all and we can go on sinning? No, by no means. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know that to enjoy the freedom of good health, that to enjoy the freedom of fitness, you have to voluntarily apply some restrictions to your life? Hands up if you know that. Some of you are looking at me like thinking, okay, the first half of this has been good, it's biblical, but now he's going after my diet. I think this is going to be pretty heretical. What's he saying now? To enjoy the freedom of good health, you have to restrict yourself in some way. I was with a couple this week, um, in a, just catching up with them. We had a meeting, and he is planning, he was telling me, next year to run a marathon. 
a full marathon, quite a famous one. He's applied. Hopefully, he's going to get accepted. And so, of course, he's busy now training, okay? He's busy training. I'm not going to tell you who it is because then you're going to hold him accountable to this, okay? And it's going to be way too much pressure. When we were in Lime Tree Cafe in Alcuz, those of you who've ever been to Lime Tree Cafe will know that they have great desserts and massive pieces of cake. I don't like dessert, but even I like their desserts, okay? And if you order cake, it's huge. And funny enough, just as we were talking about this, one of the waitresses came up and said to us, do you want some dessert? Would you like to look at the cakes? And I could see the temptation in his eyes. I could see it. You could almost smell it. I knew he wanted this cake. But I also know he wants to run this marathon next year. And so voluntarily, You'll be pleased to hear, he said, no, no, I'm okay. He applied some restriction to his life so that next year he'll be able to enjoy the freedom of being able to run this very, very long race. I was, you know, freedom, you see, is not the absence of all restrictions. And freedom is not the presence of any restrictions just for the sake of restrictions. It's not legalism. It's not just do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, for the sake of it. Real freedom, freedom is the presence of the right restrictions, the restrictions that fit with the given nature of who we are made to be. Freedom is the presence of the right restrictions that fit with the nature of who we are created to be. You've probably heard this illustration before, but Hope, my, our daughter Hope, she is obsessed at the moment with sticker books, okay? You get these little books, and the idea is you've got this book, and what you do is you've got all these stickers, loads of stickers, calls them stickies, and you peel them off, and you spend your time, hours a day, sticking them onto these scenes, onto these pictures, okay? And as a result, we, by proxy, spend hours of our time doing this with her at the moment. And I would say, actually, it's probably an addiction, that we need to nip in the bud. She's obsessed with these things. And this morning, as I was sitting with her doing stickies, I, I came across something that perfectly enshrined from the, from the mind of a one-and-a-half-year-old modern person, perfectly enshrined the modern thinking of freedom. You see, if, you, if your idea of freedom is the total absence of all restriction and the total absence of all boundaries, you will come across a fish, and you will see the fish in a fish tank, or in a lake, or in a pond, or in the ocean, and you will look at it and you will think, that poor fish, it's so restricted. It's so restricted in that pond. It's got no freedom. I'm so much more free than this fish. I can be in the water, I can be on land, I can enjoy all this freedom. This poor fish is restricted. It does not enjoy freedom. If you think that way, you'll take a hold of the fish, and instead of it being in the water, You'll bring it out onto the land to enjoy the freedom that you have, right? Wrong. By freeing that fish from the restrictions that are natural to the way that it's been created, what are you going to do to that fish? You're going to kill it. This comes straight from the mind of a modern one-and-a-half-year-old. I need to figure out which one of you she's spending too much time with. But ultimately, <laughs> this is not true freedom. And Paul is saying, your understanding of freedom is incorrect. You see, modern day thinking of freedom is this. Modern culture says true freedom is found in defining our own identities. It's defining our own reason for being. 
completely outside of all restrictions. That's the modern thinking about what freedom should be. That's the thinking out in the world. That was the thinking right now in the church in Corinth as Paul is writing this letter. That's where true freedom is found. That's where true liberty is found. It's defining your own purpose for being. It's defining your own identity. That's when you're liberated. That is when you're free. That's the modern thinking of, of, of freedom. And actually, that thinking was, was around in Jesus' day as well. You see, philosophers for years had been trying to figure out what is our reason for existing. There must be a reason. We must have been created for something. We must have been created to give ourselves to something. And they called it the logos, reason, our reason for existing. And by the time Jesus comes along, the thinking was pretty much that there probably is no real reason for existing. In fact, maybe we are just almost like blank templates, almost like computer hardware without the software. And our job is to take the hardware we've been given and to write our own software. And so we create our own purpose for being. We create our own reason for being. And then John comes along. And John writes in his gospel the account of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And as he kicks off, he says this. He says, in the beginning was the word. The word in Greek there is logos. And it would have been striking to anyone philosophical or anyone that was thinking that way in those days. Because what he's saying is this. There is a reason for being. There is a reason. In the beginning, there was our reason for being. And it wasn't a philosophical approach to living life. It wasn't just like downloading a computer program into your iPhone, the latest software, which just tells us how to do this, how to do that, what we are for, what we should do. It's not something that we define ourselves. He says, in the beginning was our reason for being. And that reason is a person. That reason was Jesus Christ. And you can know him. And you can embrace him. And you can serve him. And you can love him. And he is our reason for being. You see, if the nature of sin is an addiction to a false identity apart from God, which consumes us and ultimately leads to death, to separation from God and all good things for eternity, then true freedom, true salvation means and comes from dying to that old identity and submitting to our true reason for being, the Logos, Jesus Christ, embracing him, knowing him, loving him, and as we heard this morning, surrendering to him, our reason for being. That's why Paul says in verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, Paul sends this man out from the life of the community to preserve the integrity of the community as a prophetic people set apart from the world, but not so that he hopes that this man will die. Paul does it because he hopes and believes that ultimately this man will live. He sends him out from the life of the community out into the realm of death and darkness, out into the world, so that Hopefully this man will come to a realization that death is out here, life is in there in the community, and my identity and the fruit of that identity, which is my sin, will ultimately lead me to death. And true 
salvation, which is found in the community, will come through me dying to that old identity, dying to my flesh, and accepting and embracing my true identity found in Jesus Christ. That is Paul's hope for this man. And that is why he sends him out, that he would realize that life comes through and life is found in total surrender to Jesus Christ, our reason for being the Logos, our reason for being created. C.S. Lewis again, and for the last time this morning, says it brilliantly. He says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. Paul sends this man out so that he would realize that the only way to life, the only way to true freedom is found in the surrender to Jesus Christ. It's found in the death of our own identities. Thy will, not my will. And Paul finishes with this. He says, For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. You see, the Passover... The Passover was when the Jewish people celebrated liberation. They celebrated in the Passover their liberation from the powers that oppressed them, the powers that were were taken a hold of them, the powers that prevented them from experiencing their freedom. And Paul is saying basically, you know, the whole Christian life is a celebration of that festival. The whole Christian life is a celebration of the freedom that we now have, a freedom from these identities that enslave us, these identities that we become addicted to, these identities that ultimately consume us, and these identities that lead to death. The whole of the Christian life is a celebration of our liberty from these false identities that lead to death. He's saying it's found in submission It's found in our submission to our reason for being. However, what he's saying is it's not a one-sided, oppressive submission. If you end up in a relationship where you are doing all of the sacrificing, where you are doing all of the submitting, it's an oppressive relationship, isn't it? It's one-sided. But yet Paul says this, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the freedom that we now have You see, Christianity is different. Christianity is entering into a relationship where the other party did all of the sacrificing first, where he did all of the laying down first, where he did all of the submitting first so that we can now do the same. You see, Christ Jesus sacrificed his freedom. He was accused, he was bound so that we could ultimately be free. He submitted his will to the Father and went to the cross so we could know liberation from all of these identities that bind us and enslave us. And he gave up his life so that we could find ours. He did it first. He did it first so we could know today. He did it first so that you today could know true freedom. Freedom from the false identities that enslave us, that we become addicted to, that consume us, 
the true freedom that only comes through laying those identities down, dying to them, sacrificing them at the cross, submitting, surrendering, and taking a hold of our reason for being. Not an abstract reason for being, but a person, Jesus Christ, who loves you, who came for you, who sacrificed for you, and can transform you today. My question today for you is this. Do you know him? Do you know him? Have you embraced him as your true freedom, as your true identity, as your true reason for being? Let's pray. Close your eyes with me. Father, Father, I want to thank you that you sent Jesus Christ, our reason for being, our reason for existing, to die, to sacrifice himself, to lay down his agenda for your agenda, to lay down everything, to be bound, to be beaten, to be crucified, so that we could know true freedom from these identities that lead ultimately to death, from sin that leads ultimately to death. Thank you this morning that we can know that freedom. I pray right now, would you reveal to us anything in us that threatens to consume, that threatens to become our identity, that threatens to lead us on a path away from our identity in you and in an identity that consumes us and enslaves us and leads us to death. Would you reveal to us right now, oh God, even the seeds, the beginnings of anything that would threaten to consume us. I pray right now, would you help us to lay it all down before you, to lay it all on the cross, to sacrifice it all to you, knowing that we can trust you, that you would not oppress us, you came first to sacrifice so that we could do that and so that we could be free. Oh Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone who does not know you this morning as their logos, as their reason for being, would you reveal yourself to them right now? I pray for all those who are bound by sin, all of us who are enslaved to anything, that you would free us today right now, Holy Spirit. Would you come right now, Holy Spirit? Would you free us? Would you break the chains that bind? In Jesus' name I ask. Thank you for listening. Visit www.cityhillglobal.com to find out more about City Hill Church. Thank you.